morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is best-selling author Jamie Ford, whose new novel, The Many Daughters of Afong Moy, has just been published. Jamie, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thanks for having me. I love being here. So I'm really excited that you're going to be returning to the Bookmarks Festival this year. We had a great time together when you were here the last time, and this is such a fascinating book to talk about. Um, let's start out with the title. Who is Afong Moy? Tell us a little bit about her um, and why it was that you were attracted to, to write about her. Sure. Uh, Afong Moy was the first Chinese woman to come to America. She came to this country around 1834. She... Um, she was written up in all these newspapers up and down the East Coast, um, from Buffalo, New York, down to Cuba. She was promoted as this, uh, you know, the, the great other, as an oddity. People would buy tickets to come see her, and she would sing in Chinese, and they would look at her bound feet. And um, She was quite the sensation at the time, but none of the the articles or none of the reporting about her have her speaking in her own voice. You know, granted her English was limited, but it's always through the mouthpiece of people who are promoting her, they're monetizing her, mm -hmm. um, you know, her, her, uh, for, for their gain. Um, and I, you know, I learned about Afong years ago, uh, probably in the early nineties. And every once in a while, I would sort of bump into an article about her. And, and I always wanted to write about her in a historical way. I wanted to fictionalize her story, but there never seemed to be enough there. And her story, while it was sensational, it really did have this undercurrent of tragedy because all of this uh, excitement about her, it obfuscates the fact that at the time, Chinese women, Chinese, Chinese women couldn't leave China. And if they returned, the punishment was death. And so... Mm -hmm. She wasn't this intrepid world traveler. She wasn't a cultural ambassador. In all likelihood, she was probably sold um, into this life. And, and she was in all the all these newspapers. And then around 19 or 1850, she disappears. And there were rumors that she went back to you know, back to China, that she was touring Europe. But um, the last newspaper article, it's just a little snippet mentions her. Uh, residing in a poorhouse in New Jersey. And so she probably did not have a, a happy ending. And I, I, I just I wanted to give her a voice and also give her, you know, a legacy and a form of redemption, if you will. Yeah. So you said there's a lot of newspaper articles, um, but how much, uh, how much of her story did you have to invent? And were there places where you know, you bumped up against um, source material and said, "No, I want to. I want to change the story to make it. You know, fiction wins out over over um, history." Yeah, I you know I abbreviated her story in the book. Um, she, you know, I think my story wraps up. Um, you know, she she had been in this country five or six years. In in reality, she was here quite a bit longer, and she went through a series of handlers. I have her in the book with her 
uh, her real handlers at the time who were uh, the Hanningtons. It was a couple, they were promoters. And after the Hanningtons, she ended up in the care of P.T. Barnum. And yeah. so her story is, is much darker after that. Um, and I, and that, that brings up all this other stuff. And I just didn't want to go there because the character of P.T. Barnum is seen there, you know, there's the way he was portrayed in by Hugh, Hugh Jackman in you know, the movie. And then there is the, the actual man who was, uh, you know, prone to, um, exploiting people. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this book is set in, in many different time periods. We've been talking about the 1836 timeline, um, which is, which is historically the earliest, mm-hmm. um, but all of the main characters in the book are descended in some way or other from, from Afong Moy. Um, and so there is a sort of current of uh, Chinese culture, I think that, that sort of filters down through that. And since the last time you and I talked, I've actually acquired a uh, son-in-law who was born in China. He came here when he was three years mm-hmm. old. And so I've become, you know, just personally more, more attuned to that. Tell us a little bit about your own ethnic heritage and how that has played out in your, in your writing and in, and in particular in, in this book. Sure. Um, I'm half Chinese on my dad's side. Um, my dad spoke Cantonese fluently. He went to Chinese school after public school. Uh, we ran a Chinese restaurant. Um, I had a kind of the stereotypical uh, Chinese American childhood in in many ways, good and bad. I have the last name Ford because my great grandfather came to this country in 1865, and his name was Min Chung, and he changed his name to William Ford. Mm. Um, he lived in Nevada. He uh, worked in the mining industry. And, you know, I, I, I actually just a couple months ago, I went to Tonopah, Nevada, where he lived and where he died and where presumably he's buried. And just to see this place that is so inhospitable and desolate and to imagine someone coming to this country, a foreigner doesn't speak the language and being dropped down into the middle of the, you know, the Wild West or Nevada wasn't even a state at the time. And um, it, it just, it was beyond the idea of a stranger in a strange land. And yet he was, he was a man and, and women at the time had even fewer rights, you know, and in Afong's time, she's walking around New York or Baltimore, uh, a single woman unescorted on the street is regarded as a, you know, a woman of ill repute. Yeah. Um, no decent woman would be, uh, would be seen that way. And so she, you know, Afong's a, a minority within a minority. And it just seemed like she she must have had the deck stacked against her in so many ways. And, and I just, I just empathize with, with how that must have been for her trying to fit in, hoping to go home and ultimately uh, never, never achieving that. Yeah. So a, a lot of historical novels, and I've done this in my own novels too, um, end with an author's note, you know, where the author comes <laughs> in and says, well, here's the stuff that was real and here's the stuff that I made up and here's some sources and, and things like that. Um, but you have an author's note at the beginning, which I, I can't remember <laughs> having seen that in a historical novel. It, it was great because it's it has some sort of personal uh, note to it, but, but other things as well. Uh, tell us about that, why you wanted to put that up front. And what is this thing that you mentioned in your <laughs> author's note called transgenerational epigenetic inheritance? <laughs> Yeah, it, it seemed uh, useful to have my author's note up front just to set the stage a little bit. It's it's um, it's not a prologue. I'm, I'm not giving away any spoilers, but it is a bit of an introduction to Afong because she is. Um, it, it helps, I think, to know that she was a real character. To not wait till you get through 360 pages to discover that. 
and also to talk about the you know what's happening in the book um, as far as as epigenetics. Um, I became you know kind of fascinated with this when there was a study done in 2013 at Emory University where scientists and researchers they took lab animals uh, in this case they were mice and they introduced a uh, a cherry blossom fragrance and they electrified the floor thus habituating the mice to have a fear reaction whenever they smelled that and then they found three four five generations later the descendants of that original set of mice who had never smelled that fragrance and had never felt an electric shock when they introduced that scent the mice had the same fear panic reaction and it showed that one traumatic event had been trans you know was transmitted across generations and and i you know i kept thinking of you know what else do we inherit um not just trauma do we inherit phobias do we inherit you know levels of resiliency and empathy and things like that and that's why you know i really set out to write this which is i'm i'm calling this my epigenetic love story yeah so um, in exploring this idea that we can inherit everything from trauma to what kind of food we like, um, you're writing about the, the descendants of, of one woman over a period of time. We go from uh, 1836 up to 2045, I think is the, is the uh, I can't say most up-to-date because it's past <laughs> our date uh, timeline. Sure. Um, but one thing that all these descendants have in common is that they're all women. Why did you in particular want to um, follow the female fictional descendants of, of Afong Moy in particular. Yeah, you know, I'm starting with Afong and, and I, I could have gone, I, you know, I could have had a, a mix of descendants and I, I thought about that for a moment. And in the timeline that I created, there, there actually are two. I just don't tell their stories mm -hmm. um, because it just, it just seemed more, I mean, two things, just as a, as, as a writer, of all those time periods, you know, women were not in the driver's seat, literally or figuratively. And so they just have greater struggles and more interesting stories to tell. And people that have greater challenges, their stories are just more compelling. And, and also by keeping it as the daughters, it creates this sisterhood, if you will, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. from my opening character to, you know, my character in 2045, Dorothy. And so we see the evolution of of the cycle of women in each time period and some things improve and some things you know tragically do not improve yeah so we you talking about the opening we we do sort of ping pong back and forth it's not you don't give all of afong's story and then all of the next it's not told in in chronological order and i think that allows us to sort of allows you as a writer to kind of tease out connections that we might not have seen if you had just told everything in strict chronological order um but we begin in china in 1942 um, uh, it's during the middle of, of the Second World War, and most of this novel set in America. Um, but there's, as I said, there's this great influence of Chinese culture. Um, how did you? I mean, have you spent time in China? How did you get into that particular moment and place? Because it's it's very specific and very, for want of a better word, foreign to a, to an American reader. Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, it takes place in in Kunming, China. It's just before the United States enters the war and we're trying to contain Japan. And so, um, you know, an air group is formed kind of ad hoc, not official, um, not only you know, train Chinese pilots, but actually to fight against the Japanese. My, I had two uncles who, two uncles and actually a, a great cousin who were actually stationed there 
Oh, wow. um, they, they weren't pilots. They were in uh, military intelligence and mechanics and things like that. But part of it was like, there are other, <laughs> other Americans that contributed to the war effort in all of these foreign theaters. There were always, um, you know, U.S. nationals of, of, of ethnic descent that participated in those theaters. And I, and I wanted to, to emote that. Um, and in this case, there, there really was one Chinese nurse that served with the Flying Tigers. Her story went a different route and it sort of goes through, uh, you know, the communist China and things like that. Yeah. But she, but the essence of her story was a love story between her and a U.S. pilot. And I, and I, I really fixated on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, you know, having, having started in sort of China in a place where there's a bunch of Americans, um, you know, again, most of the, of the book is set in the United States. Um, although there's another, there's one character that we meet in, <laughs> in Great Britain. So we kind of, we kind of move around. Um, but every now and then you drop in these great gems about, about Chinese life or culture or folklore or food, um, that like make me want to scramble and find out more <laughs> about whatever that particular thing is. Uh, I, I'll just pick one that I especially liked, um, and ask you to tell us more about it. You write, and this is a quote from the book, the Chinese version of deja vu generally referred to two people who had met before. Tell us about that idea and sort of how you play that out in the course of the novel. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think every culture, um, regardless of language has their version of, of deja vu. It's a phenomenon that's not limited to, you know, to Americans or Caucasians. Um, in Chinese culture, that term, it's, a, it's narrowed a little bit more to speak to the possibility of, of two people being connected. In, in our culture in the US, people say, you know, there's a glitch in the matrix because that's how it's been influenced by pop culture. And in, and in Chinese culture at the time, there was probably something that, you know, that pushed it in that direction. But much of, much of the, the book is about um, you know, uh, inheriting trauma, but through all of these timelines, there's a sense of someone searching for someone else, of two people split apart or um, two people connected in, in some way, or maybe there are more than two people. Um, and, and I kind of leave that uh, a little ambiguous, if you will. Um, but I, I really liked the, you know, <laughs> the starstruck, faded people, you know, lovers who are intended to be together split across, uh, you know, this abstract landscape of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have to confess a weakness as a reader for myself. And that is that sometimes when a book is set or steeped in, um, a culture that is less familiar to me, it, it takes me a while to kind of adapt to that world. It takes, I, I almost feel like I have to sort of translate the culture a little bit before I can get emotionally connected to the characters. And that didn't happen for me with this book. Um, and I guess my question, so, so to me, it felt, even though it was very much steeped in a culture that was different from my own, it felt really accessible to me. And I wondered if that was, was that something intentional for you? And if so, how, you know, how did you go about making it so that just a boring white guy like me could really enjoy it? <laughs> I think that's that's weirdly one of the strengths of being... You know, of me of being biracial. Of, mm -hmm. I, you know, I have my Chinese family, I have my Caucasian family, and growing up, I never completely fit into either world. But it does give me a unique perspective and, and the ability to translate, you know, things cross culturally. I, I do think we're in this this age of this golden age of cultural cross pollinization in film and in you know television and and certainly in literature, and it 
it allowed me to, you know, to have things that are steeped in culture, but to write them for the other half of my family, if that makes sense. There are times where my wife would read the early manuscript and my wife is, is Caucasian, um, she's a redheaded Irish girl, and she will, she will make notes that just says, you know, white chick moment. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'll, and I'll pause. You're like, oh, okay. I thought everyone knew what that meant. Let me, let me, let me repackage that bit of information. And I, and I had to do the same thing with the science and technology that that's in the book. Cause there's, yeah. when you're talking about uh, epigenetics or, you know, the long form transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, I had to read tons of research papers that were not you know, they're written for peer review. They're not yeah, written yeah. for entertainment. And then to distill that essence into something that the reader could understand and then understand not just, um, you know, the mechanics of it, but how it influences the character's lives. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, to a certain extent, that's, we're always doing that as writers. We're trying to translate the world as we see it <laughs> into a world that other people can understand. <laughs> Absolutely. It's um, very true. Your, your first chapter begins with what I can only describe as, uh, as this huge bombshell. Like you, you, you mm -hmm. drop this thing on us and then you're like, end of chapter. Um, <laughs> and I'm not gonna tell people what that is because I want them to enjoy the book. But, but I would like you to talk for a minute about just the art of crafting a, a chapter. How, how, do you, how do you like to begin it? How does it shape? How, do, how does it end? How does it fit into the other chapters around it? Wow, I was in a I was I was in a writing workshop and the the uh, it was led by the author Mark Childress mm -hmm. and he said something and this is you know years ago and he said this it stuck to me forever he said you know the job of you know uh, this page the the purpose of this page is to get the reader to turn the page yeah. and then turn the next page and turn the next page and that's not that we create these artifacts that just you know just bonk the reader over the head with little plot hooks and little you know cliffhangers and it's you know nothing so mechanical but i it's really easy to get caught up in the prose and forget that we're also supposed to be storytellers and and we do i mean i do <laughs> i have these really silly things in my books i i was explaining this to my my editor and she was like oh that's crazy but it makes sense i never have my characters yawn ever because I don't want the reader to yawn. I don't want the reader to get tired. I don't want them to think, oh, what time is it? I need to go to bed. I never have my characters yawn. But I do write with the intention of each chapter. It's it's supposed to leave you engaged. And and part of that is how I write. I, I tend to I in, try to end my writing day mid-scenes. So it's just percolating in my brain. And the next day, I can't wait to sit down and finish that scene. And I think that, um, you know, um, writ large, is um, how I compose a book. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of your epigrams at the beginning of this book is a, is a quote from Charles Dickens, and Charles Dickens gets mentioned again in in the first chapter. And I think of Dickens as kind of the master of the cliffhanger because he was selling his books, you know, in installments. So he he not only had to get you to turn the page, he had to get you to go buy the next three chapters. Absolutely. You know? um, but what what writers um, influence the way you structure your novels? Mm. Wow. Um, boy, I have to think about that for a second. Uh, the, the first one that came to mind was Sherman Alexi, because when I, when I read The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven, the short story collection, he, you could tell that he's, he's a poet writing this, because yeah. he drifts out of the literal world and, and populates his, his prose with just this sort of these little magical flourishes that 
um, that I just found really, really beautiful. And so I'm often drawn to to novelists who were poets first, like uh, yeah. Luis Alberto Urrea and um, Jason Jason Mott has uh, his yeah. MFA is in poetry. Um, I think poets make just brilliant writers. Other writers, you know, um, a big influence in my life was Pat Conroy. Um, yeah. <laughs> people, you know, people they have those those lucid dreams. You know, they go to sleep and in their dream they're flying. And in, in my most lucid, happiest dream, I'm writing like Pat Conroy. <laughs> <laughs> and he just and, and you know he might have be a little over the top for some people with his prose but he never forgot that he's telling a story yeah. and he just had you know he cranked up the storytelling to 10 and the prose to 10 maybe 11 and you know Pat really just went there with the lyricism um and for me it's 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 lush and I I love it and I can just you know I can just linger there for some people, it's it's too much, and they just want to get to you know to the next car chase and things like that. And I get that. We all have our different tastes, but for me, um, Pat was huge. Um, and the other one was Harlan Ellison. Um, yeah. I know you you have Lewis Carroll's typewriter. I have Harlan Ellison's first typewriter. I, know, I saw that in your in your note. I was like, oh wow. <laughs> yeah, you know Harlan was someone that he he you know, he stimulated my imagination as a child and he stimulated my imagination as a young adult trying to figure out how to write. And he's a self-taught writer and, and I can always, almost always spot self-taught authors. They just have a certain vernacular and a certain voice that hasn't um, been subjected to <laughs> serious criticism. <laughs> and so they're just kind of, you know, bumping along um, as best they can but there's there's a certain charm and magic to that and um in harlan's work i found that in his not in his fiction but his essays he wrote uh, a column for the la free press in the 70s which it's like a great blog before there were blogs i mean it was just caustic and angry and vulnerable um and yeah i just love that stuff so those those three were probably huge influences on me so we've talked about the different timelines that this book is set in and, you know, every, I don't, I don't feel like anybody gets short shrift, but to me, maybe because it's the most recent or even more recent than recent, because it's 2045, I, I kind of feel like Dorothy is, if I had to pick a main character, I would make her the main character, you know? Sure. And, yeah. and one of the things you say about Dorothy, she, she describes herself as suffering from, quote, borderline personality disorder, manic depression, anxiety, or whatever misdiagnosed ailment had plagued me for most of my life. Can you talk about the challenge and also the opportunity of writing from the point of view of a, of a character who's suffering from mental illness? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm an author who suffers from mental illness, so it totally works. Um, yeah, it's funny. I was meeting with my therapist like two years ago, and she, she asked me what I was working on I told her it was about uh inherited trauma and her eyes just lit up because that's that's a subject that's just widely discussed in therapeutic circles now you know in in Native American communities and communities of Holocaust survivors and their descendants uh the concept of inherited trauma is something that's been on the table for forever um but now it's especially with these studies now showing that you know there's a uh you know some sort of genetic causality um people are really going there. But for me, it's, for me, it's, uh, when it comes to mental health, you know, it's in such an inexact science. It's almost this weird, this confluence of 
of medicine and philosophy. You know, there's there's the chemistry behind it, and then there's um, all these schools of thought when it comes to therapy. And each generation has been influenced by the previous generation. I was I was that kid who could never turn his emotions off. I was mm-hmm. I was an overly emotive kid. Um, my my parents, I think they knew I was destined for the arts. Um, that I was not going to make a living throwing footballs um, because they they sent me to poetry camp in grade school. So <laughs> they totally nurtured that side of my personality. Um, and you know, decades later, it paid off, I guess. So I, I especially love the the historic scope of this novel. And every time you think you kind of have got your footing in a particular time period, suddenly, okay, now it's 1892 and now it's 2045. Um, but how did you land on the specific dates and time periods that you wanted to populate with these characters? Are they, the characters are linked by trauma. I almost feel like maybe these these moments in time are linked by trauma as well. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I had, I had, you know, my, my central character of, uh, of Athong. And then I had Dorothy's story, which is set during World War II. It's a, an era that I've written about. I knew I wanted to have a contemporary setting and that's where, where Greta's story comes about. And I needed to sort of bridge everything. And I looked at interesting historical things that were happening. Um, and I, I stumbled upon the plague epidemic in San Francisco uh, in the late 1800s, actually around the year 1900. I, I, I backed it up a couple of years. Um, and I had concurrently, I had just been reading a bunch of books about this, this very progressive school in England called Summerhill, which was this maverick school in the late 20s. And the, the schoolmaster wrote all these books on education that were rediscovered in the 60s and became the blueprint for um, alternative high schools as we know them today. And so I just, these things sort of fell into place. And I, and I'd always, you know, I knew eventually I was going to end up in this place where I'm writing historical and speculative fiction together. That was, that was the dream. And so I knew I was going to jump ahead in time. And I I didn't want to jump, you know, thousands of years or hundreds of years. I just, I'm just a few decades hence, (laughs) traffic's a little worse and um, certain things in our culture are a a bit more toxic. Um, And in this case, the weather's is uh, is a little more severe. Yeah, I, I find that, um, you know, almost any historical novel that's set in America, and again, much of this, not all of this book is, but a lot of it is, it necessarily deals, it, at least in part, with what America is, what America means. Yeah. Um, you have a character in 1836 who says, in America, a lie becomes the truth with sufficient repetition, which is sort of frighteningly <laughs> relevant today um Painfully. how did how do you feel like the novel wrestles with this idea of what it means to be an american yeah much i mean an undercurrent to the book is is really that because athong is here she's this great exotic other and then we go through all these generations dipping in and out of american culture and we end up with dorothy where her ethnicity is is in many ways an afterthought but in, in many ways, it's it's still problematic as we're becoming this equitable nation um, without a you know, Caucasian my, uh, majority. And I, I wanted to bounce through these all these timelines and show this. Some aspects there's an evolution, and some there's a revolution, and some there's just static, and there's not a lot of change. I think for most of us, it's you know what do we contribute? Um, and in this case, 
uh, Dorothy, she's she's an artist and she's a poet and she's contributed something that hopefully will have some permanence. And for her, I think, and, and I, I don't dive into that in any deep way in the book, but I do look at her that way, where um, once you've added to the story, the greater story, um, you know, you can't separate yourself from that in the same way. Much of the book is about karma, which I'm just always fascinated with karma. And it's, you know, that idea that if you look at a, a chain of islands, they all look completely separate, but below the surface of the water, down to the, the seafloor, we're all still connected. And much of the book is about that. Yeah. So the other, the other thing I think that so often comes out in, in historical novels, especially set in America, is um, is the issue of race. And you... I feel like you you are dealing with racial issues that maybe are not as well known. I mean, our focus tends to be on issues that stem from African slavery, and and this is, you know, people coming from from a completely different part of the world. Um, and can you talk about how the, the sort of the issue of race plays out, especially how it evolves over the different time periods? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it and it occurs in the book when I. I mean, almost how you, how I portray the characters that are side characters or characters that you just see on the street that are of different ethnicity. Um, in Afong's time, there are, you know, there are freed slaves in Baltimore, but part of her travels also takes her to the South where she does, you know, she does have a, a see a slave auction um, all the way to Dorothy's time period where she's grappling with her own ethnicity and her child's ethnicity and having married, not married, but have a, uh, you know, have a, a, the father of her, of her child is white with a mother who is stridently Caucasian and feels that her Caucasian identity is threatened and wants her daughter to retain that. And I, we see pockets of that um, in our society right now. It, it, they, it appears to, you know, borderline lunacy, but those are the noisy people. I think there are people that are not so noisy that, that do have those concerns, but, but backing that up into um, you know, greatest contemporary time period where we look at different dating customs of different cultures and ethnicities and then going all the way back to um, Lai King's story, which is set in you know, 1900, late 1800s, um, and how, I mean, there was a plague epidemic and they did quarantine Chinatown because they saw Chinatown as a, a place, that, place that was less clean. Um, and really, you know, any, any group of poor people which are compressed into a small area, there's, it's going to be untidy. Um, but they roped off the area. And historically, I portray this in the book, but historically, they let the white people come and go. Um, the quarantine didn't apply to them um, because they thought that uh, you know, people of color were the ones that were spreading and, um, and catching this plague. And we, we had echoes of that during, during COVID, too. Um, which is was really disheartening to see that you know 120 years later we we're still fighting the same battles. Yeah. Um, to talk about COVID for a minute, you you write about um, at one point you talk about how shared trauma can and I'm going to quote here again strip away pretensions and bring out the better nature of people. Um, so so trauma is not always about you know pushing people down. Um, did you see that in the pandemic as well? And did, did you, do you feel like what you observed during COVID in terms of broad trauma contributed to the writing of this novel? Oh, you know, I think the one that, 
you know, uh, shared trauma that always comes to mind for me is is reading about um, you know England during the Blitz, mm-hmm. where people are people of different social classes. Britain was still fairly stratified. Are just pulling together yeah. for the common good, and after the war, that feeling people there are people that miss that feeling of we're all in it together everyone has their shoulder to the wheel and after the war people went back to their social classes and and didn't feel as together as they used to be i think with covid it was a different animal because we're all connected by our phones unfortunately which is this mouthpiece for social media and then there were just horrible horrible angry people out there just um you know dividing us as a country um with with polarizing information and so in some areas i think people did pull together you know i think we saw that in new york city and big cities where you know there are people were collectively going out at night at a certain time and you know cheering healthcare workers and stuff like that and everyone was was pulling for the common good and then there were people that were defiant and together in their defiance and so people it was polarizing unfortunately instead of you know one common good there was a divisive argument over what common good is um and i my wife's a nurse so i'm you know i'm married to someone who works in healthcare through all of that my daughter's a nurse and it was yeah it was disheartening i i would have expected better from us as a culture but then you know when i was researching this book and looking at the plague epidemic in 1900 in San Francisco, it was the exact same dynamic. There was the governor, Governor Gage, Henry Gage, who was the governor of California. He did not want to acknowledge the plague epidemic because he was, he was afraid it would hurt the economy. And then there was a doctor who had a cure. <laughs> and the two had a battle in the newspapers um, with the governor saying that he's an opportunist and he has a profit motive for this cure and he's a quack. And then um, you know, the Bay Area, California, so the, you know, California falling into two camps, the maskers and the unmaskers, and they would have these rallies of unmasked people at that time, which is just crazy. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. Um, so there's um, several characters in this novel who live in Seattle. And mm-hmm. so maybe this shouldn't surprise me, but I feel like rain just <laughs> I, like when I'm reading this novel, I want to have an umbrella. Like it, I feel yeah. like the rain is is throughout the novel in this in this really beautiful way. Um, talk about how how you use weather and rain in particular, uh, and sort of what what you're up to with that. Yeah, I <laughs> I, I I you know Seattle is known for rain. Um, I grew up there. Yeah, it's it's not that it rains every day in Seattle. It just looks like it's. It looks like it's always going to rain. So (laughs) I swear it, it's overcast like 280 days of the year, even though it's not raining all of those days. In the book, I've given Seattle a a monsoon season. Um, And there's a phenomenon, there's a real phenomenon that's been happening. They're they're called arc storms. It's when the the jet stream, you know, that comes from the South Pacific uh, crashing towards the Northwest, and it will every once in a while snag a typhoon and drag it across the Pacific and slam it into the coast. Um, there was a, a famous one in, in the, the 1800s that um, it had like sustained winds of 190 miles per hour. Mm. Um, and there were 
some more recent where they they set up shelters and fortunately it never made landfall but it's something that's been happening with greater regularity and so the book I you know I didn't write it as a climate change novel I, I'm not trying to create some sort of morality play it just it's part of the changing weather tapestry of the northwest and yeah. I'll just project a few decades into the future and see what it looks like um which is a city that's used to rain but not um not prepared for something like that so if you might want an umbrella while you're reading this novel, you're definitely going to want a fork while you're reading this novel. There is so much good food in this book. Um, talk about the role that that cuisine plays in this idea of intergenerational memory. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah that's funny. I, 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 I always include food in my books um, because I, I really... I believe in writing for all five senses. So I yeah. it's it's very easy to write a book that's just cinematic, that's everything's just from a camera point of view. But I always want my characters to hear things and touch things and and to taste things. And food always can reflect a culture, it can reflect uh, you know, an economic point of view. Um and it it's just useful to populate the book in that way. For me, that's that's kind of how I do it. Um but I, you know we in we inherit um you know our eye color and our receding hairlines and things like that but we inherit the genetics that construct our taste buds and construct our olfactory senses how we smell and things like that and so those things affect our taste um that's not to say that we are cursed by that or locked into that by any means because there's you know there's there's a lot of nurture along with all that nature but in my own family, just just the the strange tastes that um, for certain things that my parents have, that I have, that my children have, that I see, that, and and I think most parents we sense that intuitively. We see something we're like, okay, your your grandmother used to like that or something. Yeah. Those situations, and food becomes a really interesting vehicle just to show that connective tissue, that genetic tissue, if you will. Yeah. You described this book at one point as your big box of crayons, which I love. Tell tell us what you mean by that. Oh, um, yeah. My my first novel, Hotel on the Corner, Bitter and Sweet. That's you know that's my freshman book, or you know that's my my first my first endeavor. This is my fourth book, so this is like my my senior book, and so hopefully <laughs> I will graduate and get out in the world and figure out what I'm supposed to be. But this this really was the book that I just I just wanted to go for. I wanted to. I felt boxed in, um, honestly, by my previous novels. I'd created uh, a certain expectation with readers and certainly an expectation with my publisher to write a certain kind of book. And I I just didn't, you know, I wanted to break through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. I didn't want to be there anymore. And I always wanted to write speculative and fiction to, you know, I I don't, I didn't think about these things as I wrote it. I just wrote what I wanted to write and people categorize it later but people see elements of soft science fiction and magical realism things like that but also i have six time periods and six point of view characters and lots of poetry in the book and also this weird symmetry between genetics and uh buddhism um yeah, and so there's yeah. there's kind of a weird philosophical thing going on in the book as well so it's just ahead <laughs> of I always consider myself a minimalist with my other books and a friend of mine she looked at me she was like oh i thought you were always a maximalist 
And I thought, oh, well, then I should kick these training wheels off and just go for it. And yeah. and that's what I did. I, I didn't know if I would find a home for this book. Um, I, I switched publishers. I didn't know if I would find an audience for this book. Um, but it was the book that I wanted to write. Um, Gabino Iglesias is a, a great writer. He had a wonderful quote about, I'm butchering his quote, but he said, sometimes you just have to cut yourself open and reach in and pull the book out. Yeah. And that's that's what this book was. Yeah, I mean, and I feel I I want I want listeners to note that in spite of all that you say about poetry and Buddhism and philosophy and everything else, this is a very readable book. I mean, mm-hmm. when I when I do these interviews, a lot of times I've had a chance to read you know maybe half the book, and then the next interview comes along, and the, the, this one is sitting on my on my bedside. I'm about two thirds of the way through right now, and it's you know I'm really looking forward to 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 seeing the ending of it as well. Um, and I'm reminded a little bit of um, of Emily St. John Mandel when you talk about doing historical and speculative fiction in, in the same novel. You know, we had her on the show a couple of years ago and Sea of Tranquility, you know, her newest novel does that too. Um, well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Um, you should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little insight into writing and into you as well. So if you're ready, we'll begin. I'm ready. What word do you love to work into your writing? <laughs> I don't think there's one word that I like to get into my writing. I try to have a few new words. And mm-hmm. I do have a little notebook. And whenever I, I learn some new word, usually from another author or from a film, I make a note of it. Yeah. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Oh, uh, suddenly. I hate suddenly. I never use the word suddenly. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to write? My office, it's, I, I can write anywhere. I've written in my car, I've written at Starbucks, but for the most part, I like to write in my office because I can kind of slop out and my dogs are here at my feet. And you know, well, this will bring up an interesting answer to the next question, which is where could you never write? <laughs> oh, someplace where there's like loud music playing. Like yeah. I can listen, yeah. I, just, I, I just can't write to music. It's just, I know Stephen King writes to ACDC and stuff, but that's, that's insane to me. I don't know how he does it. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a self-taught writer, so I don't even know the rules of grammar. I just, yeah. I just write the way I write. Yeah. What's the first book you remember reading? Mm. <laughs> the first book I remember reading was given to me in grade school, and it was a, a golden key uh, book. It was uh, Donald Duck, Swiss Family Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you reading now? Oh, I'm reading now a, a book for research, and it's um, it's a journal from the British Psych- uh, Psychical Society from the 1800s. Oh, wow. Um, Lewis Carroll was an almost founding member of that society. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, what book would you like to have written? Oh, anything by Pat Conroy. Yeah. You know, Prince of Tides. Um, what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? <laughs> there's a a memoir mm-hmm. i'll just say that yeah and finally what would you like to hear a reader tell you oh i, I hear this once in a while and i'd love to hear it I, I love to hear i'm not normally a reader but i read your books yeah this has been inside the writer's studio i'm your host charlie lovett and my guest today has been jamie ford whose novel the many daughters of afong moy is available wherever books are sold jamie thanks for joining us Thank you so much for having me, and I'll see you soon.
Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On upcoming shows, I'll be talking to more guests from this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors on the 24th of September. And Anne Bogle, the modern Mrs. Darcy, will be joining me as a guest host to interview me about my upcoming novel, The Enigma Affair. Until then, thanks for joining us, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.